You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Our scripture this morning is from John 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Good to be with you this morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Matt Wiley. I was a part of this church um, for four years from 2016 to 2020, and um, sort of in that first summer of the pandemic, I left here to join Ellen, uh, my then fiance and now wife uh, at her church on the west side. We live now um, in Oak Park, but it's really a joy to be back here with you all at EBF this morning. Um, I haven't even been gone for two years, but they've been COVID years, so that feels a little longer to me. It feels like the sense of time has been very strange uh, for me and, and probably for some of you, but it's been Fun for me already this morning to get to see friendly faces and old friends and to be here worshiping with all of you. Um, I could spend a lot of time talking about what this church means to me and what EBF uh, did for me and allowed me to grow in Christ during my my time here. But for now, just let me acknowledge that there's a lot of people in this room who are still special to me, uh, people who I look up to even now from afar, and that there's a lot of things that I learned here at this church uh, that will be valuable to me for really the rest of my life. So... Uh, Grateful to be back with you this morning and grateful especially to have the chance to preach for us. So thanks 
uh, to Jeff for inviting me to preach and, and also to you and your team for leading us in worship. The last time I preached here was when we were like recording videos at the EBF office and sending out links for people to watch. So it's much better to be back here uh, in person with you all this morning. And, and thanks to Catherine for reading the text for us. John 5 is going to be our text this morning. Uh, the story at, of the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. So meet me there in, in your Bibles if you haven't already. And... Um, Let's take a minute to pray as we get started this morning. Father, we are grateful uh, to have the chance to gather together this morning and to experience your new mercies. And so we're honored to have the chance to sing to you and pray to you and to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you send your spirit now to quiet our hearts and... Uh, Teach us again to hope in Christ as we try to walk in a more joyful obedience. Um, We confess our need of him and we acknowledge that he is the only hope that we have in this world. So would you be honored during this time we ask for his sake. Amen. There's a um, 2006 New York Times article by David Foster Wallace called Roger Federer as Religious Experience. And the piece talks about what it's like to watch Roger Federer play tennis, and especially how much more remarkable it is to do so in person. A lot of people think Roger Federer is the best tennis player of all time. And this article tries to communicate just what it's like to sort of watch his greatness on the court. And even if you're not a tennis fan, I think it's an enjoyable read. Anyway, um, I want to begin this morning by reading a paragraph from that article. Here's what Wallace says. The metaphysical explanation is that Roger Federer is one of those rare preternatural athletes who appear to be exempt, at least in part, from certain physical laws. Good analogs here include Michael Jordan, who could not only jump inhumanly high, but actually hang there a beat or two longer than gravity allows, and Muhammad Ali, who really could float across the canvas and land two or three jabs in the clock time required for one. There are probably a half dozen other examples since 1960. And Federer is of this type, a type that one could call genius or mutant or avatar. He is never hurried or off balance. The approaching ball hangs for him a split second longer than it ought to. Like Ali, Jordan, Maradona, and Gretzky, he seems both less and more substantial than the men he faces. He looks like what he may well be, a creature whose body is both flesh and somehow light. A creature whose body is both flesh and somehow light. Wallace is describing here an experience I think we all can relate to in one way or another, right? The experience of watching someone who is so excellent at their craft that they make it look easy, as if it takes them hardly any effort at all, right? We can picture this in different ways. It could be another athlete like Simone Biles, or it could be a musician or a dancer. But from time to time, we encounter somebody doing something that we know is very technical and difficult, but they're making it look simple and easy. It seems as if they're doing the very thing they were created to do. Though we know it takes a lot of work, When we see them do it, it looks like rest. They make work look like rest. 
Our text this morning in John chapter 5 raises and responds to a few theological problems. Not abstract theological problems, but concrete problems, ones that we wrestle with, ones that we have to live with. And they're problems of sickness, they're problems of sin, problems of Sabbath. And at their core, I think all of these problems have to do with God's work and God's rest. And in turn, they also touch on our work and our rest. So we'll take some time this morning now to look, sort of work through our story together. And as we go, we'll note some of these problems as they come up. And we'll try to see how the text responds to these problems. By the end of it, we'll try to piece it all together and see what good news comes to us as the answer to these problems that we encounter. These problems of sickness and sin and Sabbath. So again, we'll start in John chapter 5 in verse 1. The first couple verses tell us about the setting of our story. We learn in verse 1 that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during some Jewish feast. And we're told that in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethsaida by the Sheep Gate with five roofed colonnades. And there are multitudes of invalids in these porches, those who are blind and lame and paralyzed. John is recording these details here because he wants his readers to know the place he's talking about, right? He wants them to be able to picture it. You know that pool Bethsaida by the Sheep Gate? The one where people with various disabilities and sicknesses gather? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's where this story happened. And they did know that it was a common place. People knew about this pool. In fact, we know where the pool was. They've done archaeological digs on it. It's right there in what would have been the shadow of the north side of the temple in Jerusalem. And in verse 5, we're told that here at this pool, there was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus knew that 38 years is a long time. And knowing this, Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? And at first, this question could almost seem ridiculous enough to be offensive. I mean, does he want to be healed? Well, what do you think? I mean, he's been unable to walk for 38 years. Don't you think he would like to get better? It seems sort of audacious for Jesus to come up to the man and ask him if he wants to be healed. But of course, Jesus isn't doing this to offend, right? He's not asking this question from a place of ignorance, but from a deep knowledge of the human soul, a deep knowledge of the wounded human soul, right? Because sometimes we do not want to be healed. Sometimes there are parts of us, sick parts of us, that we do not want to be healed. Because being healed can be scary, Being healed can be a surrender of sorts, right? Some of the parts of us that need healing have been around for so long, have become so familiar to us that to lose them would be to lose a part of ourselves, a part of our own identity, to lose how we have come to know ourselves. Do you want to be healed? There's a poem I like that has a few lines that capture this question, I think. It says this. He would not heal by my desire. He had to raise the man entire or not at all. And the rising was to me more fearful than the fall. 
right? Sometimes being healed can be scary. Sometimes the rising is for us more fearful than the fall. But the sick man does want to be healed. He answers Jesus in verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. You see, this pool called Bethsaida didn't just happen to be the place where all these sick people gathered. It was a pool where healings happened. Right After the stirring of the water, the first person to step into the pool would be healed of his or her disease. Some of you may have noticed uh, that our passage this morning in our English Bibles is missing verse 4. It goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, this isn't a mistake so much as it's an intentional decision by the translation committees to try to faithfully, as faithfully as I can, reflect what we have in the original manuscripts. So in your Bible, there's probably at the end of verse 3 a footnote that says something like this. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of, was, of whatever disease he had. Right, so the difficulty here is that the earliest manuscripts we have of the original text don't have this explanation. Right, the earliest manuscripts go straight from verse 3 to verse Five, But this makes the sick man's answer in verse 7 a bit harder to understand for us. So what probably happened is that some manuscript copyist along the way realized that John needed more explanation for his story to make sense, at least for readers who didn't know what happened at this pool. So they added this detail in verse 4 to give some sort of context for why this man would be talking about the stirring of the water. Do you want to be healed? Well... Every time the water is stirred, someone else beats me down to it. This isn't really a statement of great faith or really great desire. It's more a statement of resignation. You know, it's sort of matter of fact. I mean, yeah, I want to be healed, but I just can't get down to the water in time. So I'm just sort of here, and I've been here for a very long time. And Jesus hears this and says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Sometimes in John's gospel, Christ's healings are predicated upon the faith of the person who's being healed. For instance, in John chapter 4, just before this story, the Roman official's son is healed because of the official's stubborn faith, because the official insists that, yes, Jesus, you can heal my son, and so the son is healed. But here in our story, the faith and the desire of the sick man are sort of ambivalent at best, right? But Jesus heals him anyway. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. When Jesus encounters the problem of sickness, he shows that he is at work to heal us. Sometimes our faith cooperates with this work, but sometimes he'll do it on his own accord, with or without our great faith. Now, with the problem of this man's sickness answered, the second half of our passage turns to the problems of sin and the Sabbath. This man had been sick for nearly four decades, and right after he's healed, 
the Jewish religious leaders accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. For it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's their first response. And their hard-heartedness is sort of astonishing to us. But it's also a warning to us. Right? They have no room in their religious boxes for healings like this. And no compassion in their supposedly spiritual hearts for this kind of miracle. It is not lawful. But the man answered and said, look, the man who healed me, that man said to me, get up, take up your bed, and walk. So I know you guys think I shouldn't be walking today, and trust me, I didn't think I would be, but that man healed me, and he told me to walk. The religious leaders don't even want to acknowledge the healing in their response in verse 12. Right? They just ask, okay, who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Not who healed you, just who told you to walk. Who did that? And the man didn't know. For there was a crowd, and Jesus had withdrawn. We all have our religious boxes for what's allowed and what's not. And sometimes it's hard to tell which ones of them are right and good, and which ones we should probably be less sure about. One clue from this text might be that if your boxes don't let you marvel at a healing after nearly 40 years, if your boxes don't leave room for praise here, then you might need to get some bigger boxes. If we encounter this kind of healing grace, and our first concern is with the letter of the law, we might be missing the point. But the bigger lesson here, as we'll see, is that God is not threatened by our small boxes. As theologian Catherine Sonderegger puts it, we must remind ourselves again and again, again and again, that God in truth cannot be endangered or constricted by our poor schemes. God will be glorified even here in our little cages that we so tidily build for our maker. God will be glorified even here in the middle of our disbelief. Verse 14 tells us that afterward, Jesus finds the healed man in the temple and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's kind of hard to know the fullness of what Jesus means here, right? It could mean that the man's previous sickness was in fact a result of sin, either his own sin or somebody else's sin. But even if this were the case, we'd have to hold that along with what Jesus teaches the disciples in John chapter 9. There, when the disciples ask about the man born blind, Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the broader lesson of John seems to be don't go around fighting sicknesses and looking for the sins that caused them. And even here in our passage, the main point of what Jesus says is that however you think this man's sin is, sickness is related to sin, the real danger of sin far surpasses that of physical sickness. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And after this, the man tells the religious leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is the reason they were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, says verse 16. 
In fact, in verse 18, it says that they were seeking to kill him, not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So when the religious leaders come to Jesus and accuse him of wrongdoing for healing on the Sabbath, he does not respond to them by pointing out the absurdity of their concern. Right? He does not appeal to their compassion. He doesn't say, look, I know we're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, but this man was really sick and was in need of healing. Or he doesn't also appeal to the marvel of what he had done. Right? He doesn't say, well, I mean, did you guys see what I did? This guy hadn't walked in 38 years, and, and now he's walking. No, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He's not looking to impress them or to convince them. He does not need their approval. His justification in verse 17 is simple. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. This statement is the answer to all the problems raised in this passage, right? Confronted with this man's sickness, Jesus says, I am working. Confronted with this man's sin, Jesus says, I am working. Confronted with the religious leader's concern for the Sabbath, Jesus says, I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. Early Christian theologians wrestled with this text a little bit because it seems that there are other parts of Scripture that teach us that God is at rest. I mean, the whole reason for the Sabbath is that on the seventh day, God rested. But here Jesus says God is working until now. There are different kinds of rest, right? There's the rest that's the stopping of movement, or there's the rest that's the quieting of energy. But there's also the kind of rest that is an arrival at one's final form, a coming to be the fullness of what one was intended to be. That kind of fitting fulfillment is itself a kind of rest. Like Roger Federer playing tennis, God can make certain kinds of work look like rest. Because God is most fully himself when he is healing our sickness and our sin. Deep healing is God's work and God's rest. My father is working until now, and I am working. When pressed up against the problem of this man's sickness, Jesus is at work to heal. And when pressed up against the problem of this man's sin, Jesus is at work to heal. And when pressed up the problems of the Sabbath, Jesus is still at work to heal. As Hebrews puts it, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. God's work, God's rest is the answer to the problems we've seen in this story, the problems of sickness and sin and the Sabbath. But there's actually one more problem here that we haven't touched yet, and I think it's the most serious theological problem we have with this text. I think it's the problem that confronts us most directly. I think it's the one we feel most deeply. It's the one I'm haunted by as I read this passage and others like it. It's the problem of suffering. In our Bibles, this passage is given the title, 
the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. But it could, it could just as well be called the non-healing of the 99. Yes, Jesus healed a man at this pool called Bethsaida. But here lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Why did he not heal all of them? Why does he not heal all of us? This is the real problem we face. This is the deepest one that we wrestle with. We're all pressed up it in various ways. Some of us more personally than others. Some of us more severely than others. But we all feel this problem. And at times we're afraid of its weight. We might try to ignore it from time to time, but in the end, we cannot escape it. In the end, it chases us down. There's always more healing we are waiting for. The way that Christ responds to this problem in this text is the same way he responds to the other problems in this text. He promises us, my father is working until now, and I am working. God is most fully himself bringing us, bringing all of us into that great rest. He is a flame constantly burning, burning and not consuming, burning and making us whole. He will draw us to himself and he will not fail. He will purify us in the flame of his holiness. He will heal us in the mercy of his love. The promise that God in Christ is still at work is our only hope. In a world that is still in desperate need of healing, to walk in faith is to hold on to the promise that Jesus makes in this passage. And sometimes this faith for us looks pretty sure and steady, right? Moments when we can declare, yes, Lord, we want to be healed. Moments we can cry out for that healing on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of our loved ones or on behalf of the world. Sometimes this faith is a little more uncertain. Sometimes our desire for healing and our faith that God is still at work is ambivalent at best. But the good news of this story is that even in such times, God is at work to heal. Even in our moments of ambivalence, his promise remains sure. All of us in this room need healing. Some of us might need physical healing from sickness or disease. Sometimes we need healing from things that we've suffered from for a very, very long time. Others of us need mental healing or emotional healing as we find ourselves gripped by anxiety or plagued and dulled by a low-grade constant state of depression. Some of us long for relational healing, broken friendships, dysfunctional families, harbored bitterness that has taken root in us for years. Some of us, all of us, need spiritual healing from the sins that continue to break us, the little addictions we can't seem to escape. Right? These are the problems we find ourselves pressed up against. These are the ones we want to ignore at times, but they keep chasing us down. And here now, pressed up against these kinds of problems, there remains for us an open invitation, an invitation to cry out before God and ask him again to heal us, to heal our sickness, to heal our sin, and to bring us into that great rest. Because God is most fully himself when he is bringing us into that rest. It is his own work 
and his own rest. This is the prayer of our life together. Now, as then, Christ stands before the world and asks, do you want to be healed? And we say, yes, Lord, yes, for ourselves and for those whom we love, yes, for the whole world, yes, we want to be healed. So come, Lord Jesus, and heal us. Come and make us whole. And until that day, the words of Christ remain our only hope. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray in that hope this morning. Father, we're all very aware of the ways in which we need to be healed. And we confess that at times we're scared of that healing. At times we try to ignore the ways in which we suffer from brokenness of many kinds. And even now we're mindful that uh, some people in this room here this morning are suffering in very personal and intimate ways that are not known to me, um, but are known to you. And so we commit such suffering saints to you. Ask, Lord, for you to come in all your healing. Um, we do see that you teach us here that, that healing is your great work, that it is like rest to you. And we long for that rest, and we sense your invitation towards it. So would you, by your spirit, even now, grant us the faith to enter into that rest, to confess the ways we need to be healed, to cry out to you for it, and to see that you, in fact, are still at work, as you've promised that you will be. So again, we confess that Jesus Christ is our only hope. We thank you for the gift that he is and the healing that he's offered us all. Would you give us faith to see it? We pray in his name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.